Welcome to Strange Old World, a travel podcast where we shine a light on the weird, lesser-known corners of the world's most historic cities. I'm Joe, and every fortnight I'll ask a local travel expert to reveal the stranger sides of their hometown. I'll get them to pick one strange thing to see, one strange thing to do, one strange thing to eat, and so on. In this episode, we're talking about Oslo. Founded by Vikings in 1040 AD, it's nearly 1,000 years old, which puts things in perspective. For example, the fact locals like to leave their fish buried underground for three months before digging it up and eating it now feels perfectly reasonable. We'll get to that later. So that's the old world bit covered, but what makes Oslo strange? Who better to ask than Jason Moore, the American-born, Norway-based host of Zero to Travel? If you don't know, Zero to Travel is a ridiculously successful podcast. It has had more than 10 million downloads to date, which is around 10 million more than this one. Every episode is different, but most of them take the form of interviews with adventurers, tour guides, academics, all kinds of interesting people. Okay, let's get started. In this episode, you'll hear about all manner of strange Oslo attractions, from a church bell you ring with a pawn pedal to a ghostly guard dog. You'll find all of Jason's recommendations up on our website, strangeoldworld.com, and stick around at the end for my favourite strange attraction in Oslo. Let's go! Welcome to the podcast, Jason Moore. Jason, we met earlier this year uh, when you interviewed me for your far more professional travel podcast, Zero to Travel. Let's not get carried away, Joe. Come on. (laughs) So um, how did that come about? How did you get into the world of podcasting? Well, uh, first, thank you for inviting me onto your show. It was so cool when you reached out because I was like, well, this is a really cool concept. Strange old world. How has this one not been done? You've been sitting on this idea. So I was, yeah, I was grateful that... uh, I'm getting to be on here and uh, sharing some of my love for Oslo, which took a little time to develop, but uh, we can talk about that later. Um, <laughs> yeah, the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, we do have an episode with you. If, if you want in your show notes, we can link up to that so people can check it out. Sure. Zero to Travel, my podcast started way back in 2013. Yes, it's been going for that long, which is insane. And it really started out of, essentially, I wanted to create a resource that had all of the information that inspired me, that helped me practically speaking, all of the things that allowed me to create a life of travel. Um, To that point, I had been, you know, my whole journey started when I was coming out of college, I had like $20,000 in debt and this dream to travel, but really no idea how to how to do it. I had like a couple thousand bucks in the bank. And then I just decided to prioritize travel and find a job that allowed me to travel that ended up turning into like a 10 plus year life of being a nomad and not living anywhere, which at the time, this is, you know, starting in the late nineties, Joe, I'm dating myself here. You know, there was no term digital nomad. There was no hashtag van life on Instagram. There was no Instagram, you know, this was just, uh, I was like voluntarily homeless doing these travel jobs, traveling overseas in between and thinking I was the only weirdo out there who wanted to live a life like this because none of my friends were doing it. And, you know, then when I'd go overseas, I'd meet like, you know, everybody meets their first Australian in a hostel that's been traveling for like five years. And you're like, always in Australia. how is that even possible? Like, I thought I got to go traveling for two months. That was like mind blowing. You know, keep in mind, this is before there were a lot of blogs and things out there to like validate the fact that people do this. You know, I didn't know that there was gap year in other cultures that that was normal to take a year off or like some people would travel for multi 
years, you know, being nomadic was totally against my sort of standard suburban upbringing, right? But it was just like the the way I wanted to live and I just kept choosing to live. Um, anyway, so I, I got to live that life and then I picked Colorado to live and I was still traveling a lot. Um, but at that point, I really was, I don't know, I was always excited, man, when people would ask me questions about travel. You know, if I got to share knowledge with and that would help somebody travel, it got me really excited. And so that's where the podcast idea came from. I really wanted to create this resource that, you know, I have my own experiences, but it was really more about, okay, well, I get to live all these travel lives through guests. I get to talk to somebody who's done like the wolfing thing. And I get to talk to the Australian who traveled for five years. And I get to talk to the person who did like a thousand mile walk. <laughs> you know, through Africa or whatever. And, you know, I'm not going to get to do all those things, but I selfishly get to learn from them and get to travel vicariously. And also I get to share that with the community, the listening community. And then they get to sort of cherry pick like the parts they want from those interviews to either help them travel or live their best life or whatever, you know, just, I just try to have thoughtful conversations and share them and create value. That's, that's the idea and the spirit behind the show. So how do you choose your guests? Do they approach you or do you approach them? It's a bit of both, actually. Um, that's one of the things. When you have an interview show, I mean, it really is about the curation. To me, the first question is, well, you know, how can I facilitate a conversation that's going to provide some type of value slash entertainment to the people listening? Because it's nice to have some entertainment too, right? I've been doing this long enough that uh, I get people to, that reach out. And as long as there's, I feel like that there's an interesting story that I'm interested in and that I think people might be interested in as well and that there's some kind of angle that will uh, provide some type of value to the audience. Those are sort of the parameters. You know, people will email me from the listening community and they'll they'll share their story and I'll be like, this sounds awesome. Let's have you on the podcast. Some of the more popular shows are this transition to travel series. I don't have too many of them because they take a long time to put together, but I'll interview somebody right before they are taking off on a big trip. Like they're just going to quit their job. They're going to travel for a year with their family or by themselves or with it, whatever the case. And then I'll wait like a year and interview them again. And then, uh, you know, beforehand they talk about a lot of their sort of fears and different things and how they're feeling. And, and then we'll do the after, like the before and after and mush it all into an episode. And uh, that's pretty powerful, I feel, because you get to see really how travel can influence somebody and, and make a positive impact on their life. And so I'm proud of those shows. <laughs> yeah, that's really interesting. Um are there any particular favorites you've had on the podcast? I mean, I know Rick Steve is obviously a big fish to land. Yeah, that was really cool. That was like a full circle moment for me because I remember being on my first backpacking trip and having a Rick Steve's book with me and always just thinking it was so cool. And I, he has really good taste. Speaking of curation, I think generally speaking, he has he makes some pretty good recommendations. He might come up, a teaser, he might come up later on in this conversation because one of the things on the list is something that he showed me personally. Wow, okay. When we were hanging out here in Oslo. So Are you hung out? Was this post-interview? Yeah, yeah. We got to hang out uh, for a day and I tagged along while he uh, was updating his guidebook, which was really cool. That's very cool. Yeah. So you're from, originally you're from the US, obviously, whereabouts? Outside of Phil Philadelphia is where I grew up. Mm -hmm. And I was living in Colorado before I moved to Norway. So you moved to Norway after a bit of nomad life. Uh, how long ago was that? Uh, I first came... So I met my wife in a hostel in Brazil. Norwegian wife, I assume? Yep. She's Norwegian. I went all the way to warm, sunny Brazil. At the time we're recording this, it's snowing out. So I should uh, clarify it's October. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not January, February. Right. So uh, I went to warm, sunny Brazil and found a nice young lady from the northern 
cold, dark part of the world. Anyway, we we weren't in touch for four years, and then we got reconnected. You know, we lived four thousand miles away from each other, so we decided to meet up in New York, and it was lovey dovey land. And yeah, then I started dating her, and I was doing the digital nomad thing at the time. We got married in 2014, and then we had to. My wife got pregnant, and then we had to figure out where we were gonna live and then we chose Norway. And so then I officially moved here in like December 2015. Okay, so it's been 8 yeah, 8 yeah. years. Wow. Something like that. And I'm a Norwegian citizen now. Oh, so, congratulations. Yeah, took a little while. So what is it you what is it you love about Oslo? Why is it a great place to to live or to visit? Yeah, I mean, well what first brought us here when we were, were going to have children, you know, even to me it was clear that the better place to raise children was going to be Norway. It just seemed like they have a really nice culture here for appreciation of nature and the outdoors, which I value and my wife values. It's a very, you know, safe country. There's a certain acceptance of like, you know, an, an appreciation for family life, I think. And yeah, just that cultural connection with nature. Well, I was actually going to ask you about that because I came across this concept, free luftslev. Yeah. Is that how, free, how free you say it? Yeah. Okay, so free air life, which is a kind of Norwegian concept about getting outside and communing with nature. I think for some some people it's kind of spiritual and some people it's um, just more of a well-being thing. Yeah. Is that something that, that you've absorbed that's become part of your life? Yeah, I think when I did my first backpacking trip, that's where I fell in love with hiking and kind of outdoor adventures. And I grew up camping with my dad and things like that, so I always loved that stuff. At the same time, they I think they really take it to a whole other level here in some ways. It's it's not taken for granted. It's like, no, you need this as part of being a complete human, right? You need to get outside. You, you need to get fresh air. You need to be in nature. This is part of what we need as humans. There's a popular Norwegian expression, which just means there's no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. And what that means is, you know, whatever the weather is, layer up, put the wool on and get outside. So uh, these things are real. It's not like one of those cultural things you read about where it's just like, oh, it's a quaint idea. But do they really live like that? No, they do. I mean, I've seen people riding bikes in the middle of winter with giant tires. It's inspiring, man. So I think it's one of those cultural concepts. I always like to say you should, you know, it's cool to steal cultural concepts in a way. Yeah. Like, okay. So cultural appropriation is thumbs up. <laughs> no, not appropriation, but like, you know, kind of like, yeah, like you're just like, oh, this free loose leaves idea, like being out in nature, this is something from Norwegian culture that you can take home with you and really adopt and, you know, live a better daily life. Yeah. Very true. I think the, um, the quote, no such thing as bad weather, only bad clothing. I think we say that in the UK. I think it's basically anywhere they do have bad weather. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's it? true. It's man. like a justification for... Uh... Yeah. Well, I mean, but doesn't that speak to uh, some kind of positivity that permeates the culture, right? It's just like, hey, we're, we got to deal with this. Let's, let's just free loose, leave it up, man. <laughs> Okay, so now it's time to talk about the strange stuff. I'm going to ask you for your tips on unusual sides to Oslo that your average tourist may not have discovered. So can you please start me off with a strange thing to see in Oslo? A strange thing to see with oh, the strange stuff. So yeah, how do you define strange, Joe? I'm curious. For me, it's kind of unusual, bizarre, offbeat, you know, quirky, funny stuff. Yeah, I think the word offbeat is what stood out to me as as strange. And that's kind of what I was thinking. It doesn't mean that... 
I'm going to list a bunch of things here that you're going to go see and you're never going to see another tourist there <laughs> at all. But I think these are things that when I saw them, I didn't really know about them. And I thought, this is cool. Uh, this is quirky. This is something different. And so the first thing I'm going to go with here as a strange thing to see is the mini bottle gallery, which is the world's largest mini bottle collection. There's 53,000 bottles, 12,500 of them are displayed in 50 different installations over three floors. And there's even a slide that goes to something called the horror room. <laughs> By mini bottle, do you mean like the kind of uh, taster bottles you get in like duty free and yeah, stuff like that? Yeah, mini bottles, a mini bottle, like the small, it's not just alcohol though. You know, they put perfumes and all kinds of things in small little bottles, right? And food stuff and it was cool how I ended up here, man, because I went out one night with, I don't even remember, it was somebody that I knew, but I didn't know that well. And we were, he invited me to meet some of his friends at this, uh, at the top of this fortress, which we'll talk about later, because that's another place that might be on the list. And we were having a picnic outside and it turned out that one of the people there was one of the people that ran this mini bottle gallery. And so we had an, a proper night, right? We were out. Might've might been some alcohol involved and things like that. And just the stories were flowing. And somehow we ended up back at the mini bottle gallery when it was closed because she had the key and she worked there. And I, you know, I had no idea what I was walking into. Like I said, 53,000 mini bottles and, and there's like chandeliers made out of mini bottles. And it's just, it's mayhem, man. And so I, I was trying to think of how do I describe this place? And I, I went and pulled a review from, I think it was TripAdvisor, that kind of sums it up. Somebody said, quote, there's a fine line between genius and crazy, and this place slides all over it like a toddler who's opened one too many mini bottles and found the downstairs room. <laughs> Absolute gem. Oslo, I salute you. Um, and it turns out the guy that started this, he was the son or grandson of the founder of Ignis Beer, which is like a huge beer brand here. And I guess he started this mini bottle collection when he was younger and then just kept going with it somehow. And anyway, it's the world's largest mini bottle collection now. Mini bottle gallery, worth a visit. So let's move on to a strange thing to do. Okay, this is, I'm going to say this because Rick Steves showed it to me, as I mentioned before. And it's also right on the water. So it's in a place where you're going to end up as a tourist anyway, you're going to be up by the Oslo Fjord. You're going to want to take a walk down Akabriga. When you come up to the fjord, right from the Rodhusa, which is like city hall, you, you plop out onto the Oslo Fjord. And then if you go off to the right, you can go up to Akabriga, off to the left, like on the other side. But in the middle, there's a, a wire, a steel wire coming down, and there's a bell hanging in the middle. And this is called the untuned bell. If you look down on the ground, what you'll see is a Dunlop crybaby wah-wah pedal. I don't know if you play guitar, Joe. <laughs> I'm, I'm um, aware of the wah-wah pedal. I don't play. Okay, yeah. So the wah-wah pedal, it looks like a gas pedal that you can move with your foot in a way. But it's a guitar pedal. And then when you play, it's going... It's like Jimmy... Um, it's porn poor music, uh, Jimmy right? Hendrix kind of made that pedal his own in, in a way. <laughs> okay, you went, you went Jimmy Hendrix. I went porn. <laughs> <laughs> and so... This 1.4 ton bell, I'm pulling this off the artist website who did this installation. The artist is named A.K. Dolvin. Uh, I'll just read this to you. So this 1.4 ton bell was removed from the bell tower of Oslo City Hall 
because it was no longer in tune with the other 48 bells, the artist found the bell lying silent on the ground and restored its voice from its new home on Oradhusplassen. Here outside the city hall, the bell can once again interact with the bells in the tower. By putting your foot down on the crybaby pedal, you can activate the untuned bell. And they put this up in August 2020. So yeah, so you can actually step on the pedal and ring the bell, which is really cool. That's really good. And I, I just thought that was such a neat idea uh, from an artist to just like come up with that. And I also think I, I want to take this a layer deeper, Joe. Okay. I feel like this represents a few of the core values of Norway too. If you think about, first of all, there's the importance of art and design. If you come around Oslo, you'll see, you know, there's so much being so many great things being done with the city here. You'll see the new library. You'll see the new Munk Museum. Edward Munk, the famous mm -hmm. artist that had the scream, you know, where the guy's yep. holding his hands to his face. So the importance of art and design, I think that people take pride and take their time with how things are built and how things look. This art installation, to me, illustrates that in a way. And also equity and inclusion. Everyone can ring the bell, right? Nobody's left behind. The importance of societal cooperation and community if you think about the bell being a part of these 48 other bells and then not being a part of it anymore but then getting included again and that's the way the society is right i feel like they, they do their best to try to make everybody feel as a part of it and then climate awareness i think as well that's a big thing finding a way to repurpose an existing thing and give it new life that's another thing that i think this bell represents and why i wanted to highlight it, it's that the repurposing idea so mm -hmm. so you can ring the untuned bell right down there uh, at the oslo fjord so let's move on to uh, a strange festival or event or tradition in oslo so there's something called Varden's Coolest the Dog. It's the world's coolest day. And it's a festival for kids. And it's every year in August. I believe we went in August. As an event guy who spent 15 years working in events, plus, I mean, is there better branding? The world's coolest day? Like, how do you not want to go to that? And it's so cool, man. Like, you go, uh, we take our kids as a family event. But if you're, if you're in town, when you see it, like, you will have it a, a, a great time at any age. And you should go because it's not a thing that tourists are going to... Tourists aren't traveling to Oslo to go to the world's coolest day. It's just a one-day thing, but it's huge. This year, the first thing we did was we walk up to a tent and there's a total disco party going on inside. So they paint your face with neon and you go in and there's a DJ playing. It's all dark and everybody's glowing and, and you're just dancing and then doing dance routines and stuff. And this is one of like... I don't know, a hundred different things. My son got to, they give you the bucket of like a real bucket of mortar. And then you, they teach you, there's guys that lay bricks and they, they're, you're building a brick wall and you get to go and do, I mean, for a five-year-old to be able to kind of lay bricks like that, it's so cool, you know, stuff like this. There was a, a stand that was hosted by the Modern Art Museum, I think. They had all these funky cutouts of European, like Roman statues or like the legs of a, a random Vermeer painting or whatever, you know, all these different things. And you would piece them together into like the oddest looking human by like using staples. And so it was like an arts and crafts type of thing, right? I mean, I could go on and on and on. There's just all this cool stuff to do and there's food and it's free and it's just really cool so that sounds absolutely phenomenal um yeah and is it centered on a particular location or is it all over the city uh it's always at the akarhus festening which is the medieval castle which we'll talk about later <laughs> there was one other tradition like i didn't get to partake in and i'm sharing it because 
it's a popular time to come to Oslo and it lasts for a month. And so there's a good chance you might be here and actually see it. And that's the, the Rus, it's called R-U-S-S, Rus. It takes place from April 20th until the 17th of May, which is Norway's National Day. It is part of what happens when you're a senior in high school here, your last year in, in school. They take part in this tradition and it's it's strange so everybody is wearing uh they have these overalls i don't think they're allowed to wash them i think they have to wear them the whole month and there's so many bizarre things to this first of all they have these urus buses so they they put in some of them put in way too much money as a group like i'm talking about a lot of money dude like enough to you know tens of thousands of dollars oh my god yeah it's crazy you'll see they buy these buses they hire a driver they blast the worst like dance music you've ever heard at full volume and they just drive around and party in these buses. It's basically like a month long party. They have these caps that they wear with like a tassel and you can get knots in it based on different challenges you do. A few things might be like, you know, running naked across a bridge. Um, you might see someone crawling on, on the street for whatever reason. Like uh, we were playing a gig actually with my band in this town, Risa, and there was somebody crawling because they had to crawl like that entire strip that day or something. <laughs> Apparently you can earn one from eating a Big Mac hamburger in two bites, like going for a swim before May 1st. Those are the tame ones. Unfortunately, there are some drinking related ones and things like that, that I think are a problem. I don't know. You, it's just bizarre. You know, I remember seeing these groups of kids walking around doing weird things and overalls all dressed the same. And you might see it and think, what is that? Well, now you know. Can you recommend a strange thing to eat or drink in Oslo? I can. And there are several people have maybe heard of. I have a personal story with one of them. So that's the one I picked, which is Ludafisk. And have you heard about Ludafisk? Yeah, I thought that might be what you go for. Yeah. So Ludafisk is, you know what? I know what it is, but then I looked it up on Wikipedia. It is, a uh, quote, is made from aged stockfish, air-dried whitefish, or dried and salted cod, cured in lye. You can use lye to like decompose a body. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Among other things. I guess it is used to cure many types of foods, but you have to be careful because it can be poisonous. They have to they have to do it a certain way so nobody gets killed. <laughs> so, all right, so then it well it goes on the fish adopts a gelatinous texture after being rehydrated for days prior to eating. Long story short, it's a funky fish, man. And the first time I tried it was very unfortunate. Uh, there's a woman that lives in town and she is a family friend of my wife's. She sells flowers for a living. We call her the flower lady. Anyway, so we were going to the flower lady's house to have um, a little bit of food. And so I could meet her. So we sit down and she's got lutefisk as part of the spread, which of course she wants me to try because I'd never tried it before. And as a traveler or somebody, you know, you want to try the weird things. Absolutely. But she was serving it with coffee, Ooh. which is... Hang on. You mean you're drinking coffee on the side? It's not like doused yeah, right. coffee? Yes. And, and milk. Strange. She had coffee and milk. Now, it, think about like, whatever. What's your, would you say your traditional dish is like bangers and mash or fish and chips <laughs> or whatever, you know? Yeah, let's go with that. Yeah. It's like... Let's say you go over to somebody's house and we're like, you're going to have a traditional fish and chips. And then they serve it with, I don't know, insert whatever weird beverage here. But like more extreme because lutefisk is intense and not for everybody, mm -hmm. right? So it's already this intense, gross kind of thing, in my opinion. 
And now I'm going to like pair it with something like coffee and it just, yeah. But you know, but I felt like I had to just do the thing because I was there to make an impression. So I ate the Ludafisk and I drank the coffee and the milk and and it was hard. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. So that's my Ludafisk story. So have you had it since? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> maybe one time. Maybe one time. I've had rockfisk, which is another uh, type of... They, they bury this fish, and it's cured and buried. and. That's the one I think people are more familiar with, the buried one. Yeah. yeah. You eat it with uh, like a potato roll. It's like called lefsa. Mm-hmm. And then they put um, usually sour cream and red onion and things like that. And that is very funky. Uh, that's another very funky fish because like i said they bury it it's almost it's like rotten but it's safe to eat in a way you know and it's i give it a bit of a delicacy but when you eat it with all of the accoutrements you you roll it up and then it's actually pretty good but it needs to be with all the other things right in my opinion yeah my um in-laws love this and then but they don't make it when i'm around because they know i don't appreciate it and i don't like it (laughs) Does it not stink out the house as well, if you have this? Oh, I think it, it does right. pretty much stink up things, yeah. <laughs> so is there, or do you know of somewhere that you can try it as a tourist? Is there a particular restaurant or... Oh, yeah. I mean, if you search up some traditional, there are definitely some restaurants in town that serve traditional Norwegian food. Um, mm-hmm. I can't think of a recommendation offhand, but the ones I like are the ones that are in an old house. Yeah, it's like walking into a house, but it's a restaurant. But let me uh, let me just say I prefer the fish and chips. So <laughs> that's good. Well, that's a that's a rare that's a rare win for British food. So I'll, t- I'll take that. <laughs> Can you recommend a strange myth or legend or slice of history? Yes. So I mentioned the Akerhus Festning before, which is the fortress. It's a medieval castle. It's been a military base. It's uh, currently a historical site it, housing the office of the prime minister. It was built in the late 13th century. It's been besieged many times, but never taken over. I just use that as an excuse to word, use the word besieged. Yeah, Because you, know, you can't use the word besieged every day. <laughs> so you can't miss it. It's perched over the Oslo Fjord. It's, it is a great place to have a picnic. You could just climb up and have a look around. Or if you'd like, which I haven't done, and at the time of recording this, it's, um, it's almost Halloween, you can hunt for ghosts. Mm-hmm. And supposedly... This is the most haunted building in Norway, which you can understand why, having been so many different things. I I personally don't love messing with the spirit world, but if you're interested in going ghost hunting, you can go on a ghost tour or you can just go by yourself and try to see if you can figure it out and see what happens. I mean, there's there's are supposedly several ghosts. There's this guard dog that was, I, I read a story that it was buried alive at the main gate. That sounds ridiculous because why would you bury your own guard dog <laughs> at the main gate alive? But anyway, supposedly there's a ghost dog. Ghost animal is nice. You don't get too many ghost animals. Yeah, ghost animal. There's a ghost horse also. There you go. Uh, okay. I guess. A Swedish guy apparently came roaring in and was like trying to, you know, take over and they shot him in his horse and the horse still runs around apparently. There's a faceless woman in a long cloak which sounds super creepy. That sounds like the typical horror movie, right? Like the last mm-hmm. thing you want to see in real life is a faceless woman in a cloak or a, like a ghost child with a horror face, you know? <laughs> <laughs> That's are the scary things. And then you can hear battle cries apparently from like a group of invaders and, you know, all these things. So yeah, go look for some ghosts. 
Are there any customs of visitors to Oslo that might be perceived as strange by the locals? I don't know if this is strange, but perhaps just talking to people on the street. (laughs) (laughs) Which sounds so funny and normal because in the U.S. everybody talks to everybody and it's all about the, you know, you might go, I always say, you, you might stop to gas up in the U.S. and go in to buy a Snickers bar or something. And then, you know, 10 minutes later, you have the cashier's life story. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Not how it is here in Norway. It's perceived as, okay, so people think, you know, that's that perception of Scandinavians are cold. They're just shy. It's a combination of shyness. And also, from what I understand, it seems that there is a an idea that talking to somebody on the street would be intrusive. It's a version of them being polite to not talk to you on the street. The politeness thing is interesting because I think in the UK, well, I should be more specific, probably the south of England, people are also perceived as a bit cold where they won't talk to you on public transport. And I think that's that is absolutely the case that people are, you know, avoiding your gaze and not striking up a conversation. And you can very easily interpret that as being rude, but actually it is a form of politeness. It's people thinking they don't want to impose themselves on you so if you strike up a conversation it's quite likely people will be happy to chat but um they're not going to start the good news is as a tourist you get a free pass you can talk to anybody and then people will open up because i think they really want that deep down and they'll know you're not from here and so then it won't be weird but if you're from here and you're standing in a long line at h&m or whatever buying some socks and you turn around and start bsing with the person behind you you're probably going to get a weird look if you're from here And can you recommend a strange day trip from Oslo? Would you like to go see Santa's post office? The Santa Claus? I would would like to do that. Okay. Well, then you have to go to Drobak. Uh, The reason why I picked this is because, yeah, I'll get to the Santa Claus stuff in a second. But it's a 30-minute trip, essentially, from Oslo. And you can take a boat, which is super nice, or you can take the bus because it's just wrapped around uh, the fjord. So you can get there either way. But they have cobblestone streets. You're going to see the wooden houses, the cozy square. And there's something uh, called a Christmas house in Drobak, right on that main square. And that's where Santa's post office is. Over the years, the Norwegian Santa Claus has received approximately 500,000 letters to his address. All mail that's addressed to Santa Claus around Europe ends up in Drobak. They say it makes it all the way to this tiny, cozy village, only 30 minutes south of Oslo. And it's just fun so if you're a fan of the holidays like that of course you could go in july and it's just a nice little town like we went there the one time we went there there was a little flea market going on in the square people were selling old books and things from their house it's like it's a real town you know now i will say i think there are some quite a lot of people that visit there so it's not off the beaten path per se but something cool to do absolutely so the norwegian tradition they have santa claus and santa claus is a resident of Norway? Well, Santa doesn't go by borders, Joe. You know that. He's, <laughs> he lives in a borderless world, at least from a mindset perspective. Mm-hmm. Very true. <laughs> but yes, uh, we have the Yulenisa, and there's some other small Nisas, which is these small Santas, like, for example, the uh, Lova Nisa, the, the barn Nisa. And that's uh, Nisa is a small gnome-like creature that takes care of the animals. And then when it's Christmas, you have to go leave some food 
you'd leave some grats, like some porridge for the um, for the barn, Nisa, for taking care of the animals all year. And I mean, we could do a whole episode on Christmas. I have done nine episodes on Christmas. This is called the Norwegian Christmas Spectacular, and this will be the the 10th year we're doing it. So oh, amazing. If you, want, if you want more Norwegian Christmas, you can go there. <laughs> good, good cross-plugging. So that's the strange side of Oslo covered. Can you give me a few straight up recommendations, the things you think that people just shouldn't miss? Yes. I have had some listeners come to town and hit me up and I always tell people the same thing. Go to the Oslo Badstuferending, which is the one of the sauna organizations here. And if you search for Sukurbiten, which is one of these groups of saunas, go have the sauna experience on the fjord. I know we're not Finland, which is world famous for their sauna culture, but it certainly exploded here. And the Oslo Badstuferending, it's this nonprofit organization. The guy just wanted to help give people, younger people, skills and a job and look, teach them a trade. So that was how to build saunas and become a sauna master. They had a pretty cool mission and now they've grown and it's become such a popular thing. If you have a group, you could like rent a whole sauna for yourselves or you can drop in just as an individual or a couple or whatever. And the Sukerbiten is my favorite because it it's in this area where there's uh, it comes it comes out a bit on a pier and then there's different saunas around that pier and that you can kind of sauna hop to the different ones depending on which ones are booked and which ones aren't. Oh, amazing. Be prepared because if you're not used to the European way, when you get into the changing room, there's no like private place to change. Everybody's just, it's very tight and everybody's stuffed in there. You have to reserve and book in advance because they only let so many people on for a block of time. So like two hours, they might have X amount of people. And then the next two hours, the next group comes in. And that's because there's, you know, they don't want it to get overcrowded. Mm -hmm. But so, yeah, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be there in the changing room with everybody <laughs> and you're not going to have privacy. So just be warned. But it is a wonderful experience and it's so exhilarating to go from super hot sauna, beautiful design, looking out on the fjord to then jumping in that cold fjord, getting that cold plunge. It, it just Man, you can jump off the top of a lot of them so you can get that big leap into the fjord. So you get you get to kind of do the swimming thing, get into the cold water and then get back into the hot sauna and just repeat, rinse and repeat literally. It is such a awesome experience. And then afterwards, one of my favorite places to go is Paradis. It's just like spelled like P-A-R-A-D-I-S. It's a gelato place owned by real Italians. And I started going to it. They had one location in the Mott Holland, which is like the food hall downtown. And I was like, this, this gelato is awesome. And they've since expanded to like, I think, four locations now. So you might see them around. But there's one near that group of saunas. And you can go and have dessert and a really good strong coffee afterwards. And that is, uh, that's awesome. Yeah, it is with the sauna you're going hot hot to cold hot to cold hot to cold and then afterwards you go for ice cream and a coffee yeah <laughs> right yeah i hadn't put that together that's true also there are you know if you're here in the summer and stuff you don't need to do the sauna thing to just have a sort of a beach day in oslo and you can even go further out and and go to like Huken beach which is um 
out on the uh, Big Doy Peninsula. You get a city bike for not much money at all. They have the shared bike system. You get the bike and you can ride it out to Big Doy, where that's where all the museums are, like uh, or a lot of the popular museums, I should say, like the Viking Museum, the Contiki Museum. I think there's a Polar Explorer Museum, the Folk Museum, which is a great uh, outdoor museum. And uh, so you can ride your bike out there. It's a gorgeous ride. And then you can go to the beach or do one of those museums and you have a little adventure. You have like a little multi-sport adventure that's really cool right from the city. Why should people visit Oslo now? Are there any particular events happening or coming up soon? Well, I think as a traveler, you know that cities, places everywhere around the world are constantly evolving. And there's something special, and this is just a catch-all, like whether it's Oslo or another city or another town or village or whatever, there's something special about getting there and being there in a certain period of time. You know, you might hear war stories from travelers that have been around and they're like, oh, I was in Thailand in the 80s or whatever. And you're just like, oh, what was it like then? That must have been so cool. Well, if you get to a city now, you're going to be that person in 20 years, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so that's uh, there is something to be said about just going somewhere as a traveler and exploring and being a part of that. And I think being present with Hey, this is a, I'm in a place that's, it's unique and it's this place right now. And it won't be this place when I come back in the future. Um, but some more, uh, I guess, concrete reasons, I would say, first of all, it's more affordable than ever. When I first came to Oslo, the exchange rate was about 40% less. Now I'm speaking from a US dollar perspective, mm-hmm. uh, but everything was 40% to 50% more expensive. And now it's half of that just because of the state of the kroner and the economy and everything like that. So it's it's the kroner that's dropped. Well, yes. I know the dollar is strong as well, but it would also be cheaper for people coming from euros or yep. pounds or other currencies. Okay. Exactly. So it's more affordable than ever. Uh, also, there have been so many positive changes to the city since I arrived many years ago. And I just see them making really great decisions with the things they're choosing to, to do in terms of like making the city more pedestrian friendly or, you know, these new buildings that are going up. You want to have a a free place to sit and read and look at the fjord, go to the public library. And of course, I didn't, we didn't even mention this as a gateway to other adventures in Norway, of course, getting out into the West coast and seeing the fjords, the big fjords and the cliffs there, or, you know, catching a flight up North or, you know, taking a road trip. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff and Oslo is a great base from which to launch your Norwegian adventure. Excellent. Is there a particular time of year that you recommend? Well, it's interesting because I had some friends from New York come through town in July. And the city is, it's odd because a lot of Norwegians leave in July because that's the sort of the month that everybody in this country is off. It feels pretty empty downtown, which is strange. And I'm always amazed at why are people leaving at one of the best times of year to be in the city? Are they leaving Norway or are they just going into the countryside? Both. Some of them are going to other countries. It's becoming more popular to stay in Norway now. But a lot of there's a huge cabin culture here. A lot of people have cabins. They have second homes, grandparents, whatever. And so they go off and they're on these places. We do do those things too. But I always try to spend some time in Oslo. And when I was there this past July, it's pretty amazing how uncrowded it is. And and you're getting some of the best weather. I mean, it's Norway, so it could be raining the whole month too. Mm-hmm. But you're generally getting pretty good weather. So July in that way, although it's the height, I mean, that can be a, a kind of a sweet spot to come. Uh, the shoulder seasons, and we mentioned it's snowing in October right now. So you can, of course, 
have a great trip on shoulder season, but you can also get some crazy wet weather the later you wait into the season. Or even if you're coming in early spring or later fall, you might be in snow and cold weather. So don't expect to come necessarily in at the end of March and expect that you won't be in cold winter weather because you might be. Mm-hmm. So those are considerations, but I, I feel like a city vacation, if you're coming to, to experience a city, I love going in the winter months because you're doing city things anyway right? Like generally you're going to the museums, you're going to cafes. Generally you're doing a lot of inside stuff anyway. So it's kind of nice to come when it's off season. So last but not least, just to end on something strange, what's the strangest site you've seen elsewhere in the world? That's kind of tough, but the one that, one that stands out, I'll say is the the Vietnam's crazy house. It is in uh, Delotte and it's just a I just love these types of buildings or these ideas. It it It's like this one lady who just wanted to do this thing and she wanted to build this crazy house. It, it is a crazy house. And what, what I mean, it's like, it's sort of psychedelic. It's kind of like a Gaudi meets sort of Alice in Wonderland type of situation. I just always admire like when there's like one person who has this mission and it doesn't make sense to anybody else, but they just kind of follow through and do it anyway. And they find a way to do it. And that's what this is. So it's not just the house itself, which is interesting and and odd, but it's also the kind of the spirit behind how it was created and the, the tenacity and the sort of sticking to a vision that like maybe other people don't see. I really admire that type of uh, approach to life. So... And we're out. That's Strange Old Oslo. Tick. A massive thanks to Jason for all his tips. If you want to try Lutefisk, the funky fish, he's now picked the perfect place to go. Gamle Radhus, near the Akershus Festning. If you have no idea what I just said, uh, nor do I really, head to strangeoldworld.com. All of Jason's recommendations are written down there. There's also a map so you can find them. Don't forget to check out Jason's excellent podcast at zerototravel.com or wherever you get your podcasts. As for me, I'm available at Strange Old Joe on both X, brackets, Twitter, and Instagram. Before I go, there's just time for my own strange Oslo recommendation, and it's this, the Dissatisfaction Bar. Set in an old psychiatric institution, this is a pub specifically designed to annoy you. There are deliberately uncomfortable bar stools, the, the beer glasses are only filled three-quarters of the way. Oh, and the official complaints box acts as a shredder. Most strikingly of all, there are unsettling cartoons all over the place, revealing that the whole thing is really an art installation by the owner, Christopher Nielsen. But then again, it's still an actual bar, with regular live music and events, which has led to some enjoyably confused TripAdvisor reviews. Dissatisfaction Bar is better known by its Norwegian name, which I can't say. Luckily, like everything else, it's up on the website. Right, that's it for today. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time on Strange Old World. Music is by William King and this was a Junior Productions production.